0: Holy shit, this cast is loaded. Yeah, Jason Momoa, Dave Bautista, Oscar Isaac, uh uh Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. Uh Zendaya. Uh Zendaya is Chani. Zendaya is Chani.
1: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of Keith Foster, San Diego, November.
0: That's right. And you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains and you're a you're a little punchy tonight. Mm -hmm. You're a little. uh, Yeah, you're hanging in there. Did you have a is this a, a post Halloween you know, sort of holiday hangover, or, or what's <laughs> what's going on? Are you good?
1: Not exactly. I mean, I do have way too much candy in the house because I am the only one consuming it.
0: Uh huh. Um, did did you get trick or treaters?
1: I did not. I okay. did not. Uh, the The placement of my apartment uh, does not face the street, and my particular building just kind of looks like a house from the outside. Uh-huh. So.
0: Yeah, so pe- people probably aren't going to go around back.
1: No, they have to go all the way around back, and even then, it doesn't. It just looks like the back door to a house. It doesn't look like a separate door to a separate apartment. So it it's kind of a whole thing. But I sort of also appreciate that because I don't, um, you know, necessarily want to be that accessible all the time.
0: Well, sure, but like you know, for Halloween, like we we literally got two trick or treaters. One of them was mm-hmm. our. Uh, neighbor they have a two-year-old son and then the other was a homeless man who found some shitty like rubber mask somewhere and (laughs) was taking advantage of it and you know what good on him yeah that is the kind of innovative thought leader we need here in america uh he is he is trying to pull himself up by his bootstraps uh he he is he is doing it he is working for his candy
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, if if, uh, if there's one day a year where folks are just giving away food, might as well take advantage of it. And stock right? up.
0: Yeah. I mean, for him, he was like, fuck Thanksgiving. This is great. I get a little fun size Twix.
1: On the other hand, you're also on a weird sugar high the entire time and makes your sleep schedule real, real weird. On this episode of the podcast... Uh, we're going to be reviewing the new Dune. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're, we're doing it. And I, I apologize to everybody for that. I um, I, I'm
0: sick of it. This is a rate. You are. I'm being silenced. Cancel culture has gone too far.
1: <laughs> and uh, at the end of the podcast, uh, we're going to be doing uh, your streaming homework. Um, another round starring Mads Mickelson. Yes From Yes. last
0: year the the year that didn't I, I felt like I had more of a Halloween last year because all I could do was sit around and watch horror movies. So I I watched a lot last year this year I felt like I hardly got to any.
1: Mm-hmm. well but yeah uh, before we get into all of that I did want to I was thinking about uh title sequences mm-hmm. and movie intros. Mm-hmm. and i guess we'll kind of get into a little bit of discussion between the difference between the, those two things yeah
0: i because you said title sequences and like in movie intros I, and do or you, yeah okay because sometimes so,
1: it can be sort of both you know like sometimes well, a like, movie do, will, do you count a cold open uh yes if it leads into a title if it leads into something well, I'll, I'll I'll explain when I get to one of mine. But okay. Um, oh, okay. All right. But yeah, so you know, I left it a little open, but I wanted to talk about some of our favorites. You know, what are some of the iconic ones? Um, I ended up coming up with a lot. Uh, we're going to limit the official list to, to three each as usual. Um, I but I do well. have a lot a of runner ups So um, yeah. I kept thinking of more as I was remembering. And there's one decade in particular that keep popping up, which was interesting.
0: Oh, interesting, because most of mine are uh, fairly modern. I think title sequences are is something that I, I mean, there. yes, there are definitely some some older ones that are good. But I think mm-hmm. it is definitely something that is more just it seems like a more modern thing to me, like really good ones.
1: See, I, I actually don't. I think that it, it's sort of, a, if anything, I think it's the opposite. I think that, um, you know, I, I've talked about how like during the pandemic and stuff, especially I was watching a lot of like YouTube reactors watching older movies mm-hmm. and even movies that aren't very old, like in the 80s or 70s or whatever. You know, a lot of these people are in their early 20s or whatever. And if there was any kind of title sequence, like if they didn't just jump right into it, they were like, Jesus, why why is the intro so long? Well, okay, yes, there that it used to be more of a
0: thing to do title sequences at the beginning of the movie, but I, I think the movies that do them now, because it's something you don't really need. To have at the beginning of the movie anymore
1: It's a stylistic choice Yes, and it's, I and I think And at one point in time, not mm-hmm. doing one was a stylistic choice Yeah uh, sure. And I think that that became sort of a hallmark of modernism Was to just jump right into the action You might have like one title card Or just some credits running over your opening sequence mm-hmm. But Yeah, I think, you know, nowadays, if somebody wants to do some animation or somebody wants to, you know, really spice it up with, I mean, with the exception of like Bond or whatever, which that's very traditional. um, Nowadays, it's a stylistic choice to do one.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's why nowadays they they tend to stand out more to me is because if they're doing it they're like weaving it into the fabric of the movie the way that
1: yeah they're they didn't priming you do back in the day. for the experience
0: yeah i mean i the only one who really does them like you know like classical you know is uh quentin tarantino cuz he's got such a hard on for his nostalgia sure uh, but you know he his are also very intentional yeah um, anyway, let's let's get into it. We we're kind of dancing around it. So what uh, what's one of yours? Where do I go with this? Do I do I do my big daddies?
1: Yeah, go big. I would okay. say go big. Uh,
0: I'm gonna say Watchmen. Uh, Zach Snyder's Watchmen. Now Zach Snyder, we talk a lot of shit on him on this podcast, and and that's kind of why I think I want to include this. He is um, our whipping boy. Yeah, I mean, we're not huge fans of his work most of the time, um, but he always has really incredible title sequences like, uh, you know, his remake of Dawn of the Dead, um, even most recently with Army of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the one, like, the best thing I think he's ever done is the Watchmen title sequence. <laughs> uh, the way he, like, Weaves the history of the Minutemen into this, you know, really cool looking music video. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you, it's very easy to watch the beginning of Watchmen and just go, oh, fuck, Zack Snyder gets it. I, the rest of the movie, I think, is kind of a counter to that argument. Right. But uh, <laughs> the, you, the title sequence is just stunning, it's so well done. Uh, I love the the vintage kind of cheesy looking costumes of Mm -hmm. people uh, down to, to um, Bob Dylan's, uh, the times they are changing. Like it is, it's brilliant. It's
1: really well done. Uh, So yeah. yeah. As a piece unto itself, the movie, notwithstanding that is um, that is done. Well, that, And and that's
0: why I think of it because yeah, I, You know, I, there's, I mean, there's some stuff I like about the Watchmen movie, but for the most part, I'm pretty lukewarm to it. Yeah. Uh, same
1: here. It's definitely not his worst. No, thing no, no. That at he's all. ever done. The problem is it's, it's, he's adapting the comic book Bible. And so, you know, it's, I mean, we'll get into some of that kind of stuff when we talk about Dune, when it comes to like fans and expectations and things like that. But, but yeah, I think that, uh, that 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 intro does stand out from the rest of a lot of his work.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. What is what is one of yours?
1: All right. Uh, I'll I'll start with the one that um, got me on this wavelength. It got me thinking about this segment. Uh, okay. One of the movies I watched this this October that I hadn't seen was the original Blob from 1955. Oh, okay. And it has the most fun opening credit sequence for that type of movie ever. I mean, it, it kind of has like a cheap kind of animation um, Saul Bassy kind of thing happening in the background Okay. Um, with this Burt Bacharach sort of like comedy song, even though the movie takes itself relatively seriously. I mean, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but sort of isn't, it knows it's a B movie, but it also is kind of like doing it. It's not entirely parody, uh, but the Bird Backrack song is definitely like it's this very like bubbly, upbeat. You know, here comes a blob, bloop, bloop, bloop. like it. <laughs> you just have to watch it. It's it even if you don't even watch the rest of the movie, just watch the first like two minutes of I've it. I've
0: never seen either of the blobs. Like, I hadn't and- either.
1: It's a big oversight on my on my part. I always meant to, so I was like, let's just do it. So I watched them back to back. I watched the 1955 and the 1985 uh, 88. Um and they are both a lot of fun and really cool in their own ways. Um but I think that uh yeah that that blob title sequence is I was just like, "Okay, let's fucking do this."
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> cool.
1: I mean, title sequences I
0: I like a good title sequence because mm-hmm. it, you know if it's done well, it gets you like just immediately into the movie.
1: You can actually kind of lead into a fairly like long and unadventurous first act if your title sequence is good enough to sort of at least give you a promise for more to come.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. All uh, right, okay. What's another one of yours? Uh My next big one, and this was the one that. That I when you suggested this seg- segment, this is what I immediately thought of because it has just stood in my mind since. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think a uh, a lot of superhero movies do really cool title sequences. It's it's kind of a you know a thing of the genre, right? Um,
1: I didn't uh, think of that many, and I try, I tried to rack my brain for ones that had them, and I I mean. Outside okay, well, of a couple, uh, well, you you can say yours, but I didn't think of, like, a, a bunch did not flood my brain.
0: Well, I think there's more than you realize. Um, maybe not as much with the MCU, because that's a little more standardized. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that has always stood out in my brain was the title sequence for Spider-Man 2. And the reason I loved this one so much is mm-hmm. uh, it retells the story of spider-man one that's
1: right yeah but
0: with this amazing like alex ross art Mm -hmm. where he depicts like these key sequences and so the title like the credits are set up like the like the first movie like with the webs and all that right but it's just this beautiful artwork that refreshes you you know it, it serves as both a title sequence and as a sort of like a previously on Spider-Man, you know, to, to get you caught up with the adventure. You could walk into Spider-Man 2, having not watched the first one. I don't know why you would, but uh, and you would have an idea. You would have a pretty good idea of what's going on based solely on this opening. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's it's Alex Ross, who... Um, yeah. For our listeners who don't know he is uh he's a very photorealistic comic book artist yeah um which you know sometimes I'm not as necessarily keen on in actual comic books uh because he has a very like golden age style but um right but with like you know this kind of watercolor uh uh, uh yeah aesthetic
1: or sometimes but- oils and stuff and he he oftentimes uses live models to work yeah, from.
0: He's, he's one of yeah. uh, the few comic book artists who I think most people would acknowledge could also double as like fine art because there's just like, and, and that is not a dig on comic book artists. Uh, it's just the level of, of craftsmanship is mm-hmm. is clearly very well done.
1: Yeah.
0: And it definitely lends itself to this style of like live action, versions of, of superheroes. Cause he's able to, you know, like depict Toby McGuire and Kirsten Dunst uh, in just these beautiful artistic renderings. So that, that was my superhero uh, movie pick.
1: I mean, Watchmen is a superhero movie as well.
0: That's true, but it's different. <laughs> we
1: all know it's different. Fuck off. Okay. The, this one is one of my favorites. Um, not necessarily of this director, one of my favorite movies, but uh, the title sequence has always been super cool. Sometimes I'll just go to YouTube and just watch it as a music video because I think it's really cool. Um, David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, he's another uh, director. He likes his title sequences. Yeah.
1: He does them. Yeah, I mean, all of his movies have an interesting one whether. Uh, the one with the Dust Brothers from from Fight Club or the uh, the Nine Inch Nails one for Seven.
0: Yeah, I, I like that one because it it kind of like shows you what the killer is like doing. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it kind of like you don't, you might not even realize it when you first watch it, but it's like, you know, it, this is all John Doe working on his stuff. So I, I think that one's particularly cool to me.
1: Um, right. And the one for the girl with the dragon tattoo, 2011, his American remake of the Swedish film, has kind of a like a modernized Bond movie aesthetic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, it's, there's a lot of like weird black, oily, inky CGI stuff happening, creating these. These like structures and figures and faces and wires and cords, you know, because she's a hacker. So there's the there's like this kind of industrial element to it. Um, and it's uh the it's to a uh, cover of Led Zeppelin's um the immigrant song. No, that's right, yeah. Um, which is yeah, performed that was that performed was by Atticus song. Ross and, and Trent Reznor and then uh Karen O of the yeah, yeah, Yeahs doing the vocals on it. And if you're, I'm there, Led Zeppelin's a band, like one of very few bands that I think just like, just don't cover their music. Like there's some bands, I think like the Beatles, you can cover their stuff. The Stones, you can cover their stuff, whatever. You can do your own stuff. But like Zeppelin, Queen, there's a handful of others. I'm like, just don't. Well, it never sounds as good, but I I like this cover. I actually do like this cover. I,
0: not to get on too much of a tangent about that, but I, I think it's when uh, kind of when the style of the artist is so uh, weaved into the songwriting itself, right? Like yeah. the Beatles were, they were amazing songwriters. So they were able to write a song that any asshole could play on an acoustic guitar and it would sound good, right? Sure. Whereas Led Zeppelin, Queen, like you said, there's such a performative quality to kind mm-hmm. of their songwriting that I, I think maybe that's kind of why.
1: Yes. It, the the performance is, is half the point. It's part of it. Yeah it's, yeah. it's, but in this case, I think that this like weird industrial rock version of it kind of works. Uh, Karen O's voice um, instead of uh, Robert plans actually kind of fits um, in their own weird way. And, and I think that the, with along with the visuals just creates something eerie and interesting and unlike you know the the more blues rock version of it that zeppelin did but yeah so i i really love that title sequence again the movie itself it's it's okay it's good yeah i i tend to prefer the swedish one that's probably
0: Um, why i didn't think of it because now that you bring it up i definitely remember that like title sequence um, yeah but
1: I mean, it's it well both- made if you've never seen the Swedish one, it's a good dark thriller, but it's I tend to think that the Swedish one just sort of has a bit more grit and raw yeah, quality I to
0: it i yeah, I didn't hate it, but I also didn't like you know it was it was good
1: yeah yeah it was it was kind of Fincher on autopilot, but um I mean that's still better than most people's movies
0: yeah uh okay, so for my last one. We're going to do, like, an honorable mentions, right? Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, because, yeah, I have a shitload. But I do want to go with one that isn't a superhero movie, because I, like I said, I found thought of a lot that were superhero movies that I'm like, yeah, this is incredible. Um, this one's a deep cut. Uh, and the reason I'm picking it, you know, like, earlier, I kind of, like, looked up some movie intros just to like kind of get my brain working and just to remember something, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. If it looked as cool as you remembered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one that I did not see like come up on like anybody else's lists, uh, but it always stood out to me as a kid was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Um,
1: oh, I don't know if I can recall that off the top of my head, but I, so I assume it, it's cool.
0: It's I mean, it's not cool. Like, you know, like the Immigrant Song or, yeah. uh, you know, Watchmen or anything like that. But it's this uh, it's like this cartoon of Santa yeah. Claus. And he's like sneaking in the house. But like everything kind of goes
1: wrong for
0: him. And that I think was it's a just,
1: thing. That was like a late 80s, early 90s comedy thing for a I while. I think it
0: went even further. Like, uh, I think maybe Pink Panther.
1: Yeah. Pink Panther had one. Stop her. My mom will shoot. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. A lot of these have these little animated intros, with like the characters like acting like the Looney Tunes, and then you know something would fall over on them, and somebody's yeah. name would be behind it or whatever.
0: Well, th- this one stood out to me because it it wasn't anything that would actually happen in the movie. It was it was mm-hmm. uh, you know it was about Santa Claus, a cartoon Santa Claus. Yeah. He's like trying to get into the house, but. You, just everything goes wrong. Like he falls off the roof. He uh, accidentally puts his hand in a, in a broken Christmas light and like electrocutes himself.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's,
0: it's just silly and charming. And, you know, it has got the Christmas vacation theme song playing over. it just, I think really gets you in the mood for a fun Christmas classic. I, I think it kind of establishes, you know, like this comedy of errors that you're about to watch. Um, but I don't know. It just, and maybe it's because I saw it when I was a kid, and you know, cartoon equals quality when you're a kid. Sure. Um, but it just always stood with me, and and every time I watch that movie, it's one of my favorite parts.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I can. I I vaguely remember that it was animated. As, as soon as
0: you like rewatch the movie, you'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, yes. I remember this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I'm kind of conjuring it now that you bring it up, but um, just always one of my personal favorites. Sure, sure. Uh, this one is probably the most off the beaten path, but I think it is kind of something. The Coen Brothers raising Arizona. Okay. So,
0: are you? So, are you including like the the intro, like
1: voiceovers? Yeah. So the first. The first, uh, I think it was like in the Guinness Book of World Records at the time or something, like the longest wait in a movie before the before you see the title <laughs> or something. I think okay. it's something like 12 minutes of the yeah, movie it, goes it's by. It's like
0: the whole setup and like the whole. Of the whole
1: thing. Yeah. yeah. With I mean, it might the, not be that long, but it feels that long. I mean, like basically the, yeah. telling the story about, you know, Nicholas Cage and Holly Hunter and how he's an ex-con, she's a cop and how they met and how they fell in love every time he went back to jail. And she was, she was taking his prints and stuff. And, and then how she got it in her head that she needed to have these babies and how they were going to get these babies. I mean, it sets up the entire movie
0: well, and then
1: it, there's like some music kind of playing in the background and, and mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of um, it's edited quickly and then sort of in montage but uh, once well, it, you get it, to that title card, that's when the movie really starts.
0: Yeah. And, and it's all literally the whole thing is it with Nicolas Cage's narration. And then mm-hmm. after this sequence, it, it like you actually see scenes play out.
1: Yeah. And I don't believe there is narration after that point. There might be a couple of like, dream sequences or something where there's where there, there's narration
0: there's definitely some at the end uh that like, yeah kind of closes things out but yeah
1: I but think the movie doesn't rely on that after that point um yeah. and it, it's just it's such big ballsy bravura filmmaking yeah um and yeah i just like that kind of like hungry young director flex of <laughs> that whole intro and again this is not one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. I, I like it. I, I tend to think it's a tad overrated at this point in their career.
0: Well, I think you're a tad overrated at this point in your career. So. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Um,
1: I don't no, dislike I, I it, but mean. I mean, as far as their comedies and stuff, are going, I think they've grown a lot since then. Well, but
0: It's also like when every movie you make is a classic, some of them, aren't going to be, you know what I mean? Like, right. it's the then, fucking Cohen brothers. They knock it out of the park almost every time.
1: Right. And there's a lot of their movies with really great intro sequences. that I could have mentioned, but mm-hmm. um, that one in particular, I think, you know, cause a lot of people didn't see blood simple. That was a pretty small movie and mm-hmm. mostly kind of an indie hit. Um, whereas this was the movie. Most people was introduced to them from. So, I mean, what an intro.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no i I think that uh, I think that counts. I I mean, like I said, that I wasn't sure exactly kind of what you know what I mean, but mm-hmm. I I think that qualifies as a, an opening sequence.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So, so, what are some of your leftovers? Well, I I was
0: gonna do an honorable mention uh, to just all of James Bond. Uh, sure because it's been such a long running tradition and because they're always like, you know, art directed within an inch of their life. uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a part of what they
1: do. Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. So how do you pick one that stands out over the rest? I mean, of course, some are better than others. And a lot of time it depends on the Bond theme song, but you know what I mean? Like just in general, like they've kind of been owning title sequences for the last 60 years.
1: Yeah. And it's always something to look forward to. And it's always something they're trying to top themselves with.
0: Yeah. Um, so that uh, is definitely, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to that. Uh, other superhero movies, I'll just rattle off real quick. Um, X Men Wolverine Origins, literally the only watchable part of that movie, <laughs> is the opening sequence. And it's okay. pretty cool with like Sabretooth and Wolverine like fighting through all these various wars throughout time. Um, and, and it's just like time progresses, but they're just like fighting in a different war. It's pretty cool. Uh, also shout out to the Deadpool movies, um, very meta, very like they're literally joke titles,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but you know, really, really fun. Um, uh, also the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, both of volume one and two have really memorable title sequences. I mean, this is our introduction to Star Lord and his obsession with music and pop culture. Uh, and then the second one, they're like fighting that space monster and it sort of shows them working as a team. I mean, God, I have so many, uh, I don't want to go on too long. Uh couple, uh, another, you know, really good modern one that I, I loved was from baby driver. Okay. Uh, yeah. Where it like, it's almost like a musical number. The way he's like walking through the town, and the the credits are like mm-hmm. timed with the music. It's very cool. Yeah, I don't want to go on too long. I have so many.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'd also put uh, as far as Edgar Wright movies. Um, I put the 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 intro sequence to uh, at the World's End on my short list as well. I I really like that one. I don't remember that one. It's one. It, it it shows him when he's younger. Him and his friends when they're younger. They're doing the pup crawl and and yeah. Uh, I
0: remember the cold open. I don't remember like a the ti- a title sequence. Well, it's kind of all part of it. Okay. Um all
1: right. Okay. So these were the ones that were on my runner ups. Uh, my best friend's wedding has a really fun, memorable one. Okay. Um, it's very throwbacky. It's this old kind of uh, classic pop standard and these like this bride and bridesmaid sort of lip syncing has nothing to do with the rest of the movie other than the concept of marriage, but it has this kind of like fifties throwback feel to it that I like a lot. Um, If I'm going to pick one Hitchcock, Saul Bass um, intro, I'm going to do psycho. And I watched a few just to make sure that I wasn't overlooking anything. It's between psycho and vertigo, but I I'm giving the edge to psycho. I think it's just more immediate. It kind of has this, you know, staccato jagged score that uh, i think really flings you into the movie the sweet smell of success from 1957 oh, um this is um uh this one's really cool it bear, again just a lot of like bravura filmmaking this this uh you know shows um a newspaper you know going from print to publication to being put out on the street in in what feels like almost like one fluid shot. I'm sure there are cuts, but um, it has it has this kind of uh, fluidity oh, to it. That's fuck. really, really cool.
0: That just reminded me of that um, Orson Welles one, uh, A Touch of Evil.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one's yeah, really that cool as well. Really
0: long tracking shot with the car. And mm-hmm. the, yeah, that one is um, also really fucking cool.
1: Uh, if, we're go, if we're talking about long tracking shots, I have Boogie Nights. The opening sequence to that, um, you know, starting from that big crane shot down into the uh, club, where they introduce to every single character, where they're sitting in, in the in the club, and these little short little pieces of conversation we grab from them it introduces everybody in the movie in one fluid motion. Um, very cool. And then kind of a, uh, well, not kind of, I mean, pretty overtly, a um, homage to the the Saul Bass Hitchcock openings, Catch Me If You Can.
0: Yes, yeah, that was, I actually also have that one here. Uh, Yeah, that one is really fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, very classic. Like, it definitely feels of the era that the movie is.
1: Taking place, Um, yeah.
0: Also, uh, one you didn't mention That I just want to shout out real quick because we just left that season. Uh, the original
1: Halloween
0: and then, um, the 2018 Halloween
1: with the pumpkin,
0: yeah. And I I liked how just the
1: simple black title cards,
0: yeah, yeah. And like you know, the pumpkin, and then, uh, the in Halloween, the 2018 one. is like a reverse shot. So it's like the pumpkin reforming after mm-hmm. being rotten. I, I thought that was really cool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The way that they, they were like in conversation with each other.
1: For sure. So if anybody else has uh, any favorite title sequences that they remember, um, hit us up on social media at uh, Pod on Twitter or Instagram and tell us some of your favorite ones. Yeah. Um, I,
0: I mean, there's so many out there. Like we, you know, we only... Touched on it, yeah. Touched on it, yeah.
1: I for, there's. I'm sure there's plenty in animation that I didn't even think about. Oh God, yeah. You know Disney and whatnot. Um, but I was trying to sort of limit myself. Um, let's go ahead and talk about Dune. Let's go ahead. Dune uh, it. Uh, this was supposed to come out in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been shelved for quite a while. Finally, came out a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. 2021. Did you see it in the theaters or at home? Uh,
0: of course I saw it in theaters.
1: Okay. Did you see it in IMAX or did you see it in a regular um, digital no, theater? No, we
0: did not see it in IMAX. We went to one of the theaters with reclining seats because I knew how long it was. Uh-huh. And, uh, so we wanted we wanted the comfy seats.
1: You want to be comfortable for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which- Do you want to try and describe the plot of yeah, this uh, half of dune
0: yes i do want to set it up um dune is a, a complex machiavellian story mm-hmm. uh about these you know houses vying for power in space mm-hmm. um specifically the house Traities and the house harkonnens um House Harkonnens have been in control of the Dune planet Arrakis for some time, but House Atreides is becoming too powerful. Uh, It is becoming uh, too strong within the universe that it threatens the Galactic Empire itself. So by Imperial decree, the Harkonnens are forced to leave the planet Arrakis Uh, and the Atreides will become the new stewards of the planet. Now, this is a big deal because Dune is the sole production in the universe of spice, which is a hallucinogenic drug and also uh, uh, allows them to fold space, uh, allowing for space travel to become possible, uh, uh, for you to, to, to travel light years, In an instant, Um, it's
1: essentially fuel. It's essentially oil. It's
0: yeah, but it's super fuel. It's like it's literally like if oil could put you in a plane that would, you know, take an hour to get from L.A. to Beijing. Right. It is.
1: I didn't I didn't mean literally in the in the the makeup of the substance. No, no, I, I know. But what it, uh, you know, what how it functions in as a MacGuffin in the story
0: in space politics? Yes, it is. Yes, uh,
1: uh, it is a finite resource.
0: In yeah, a very important uh, resource for space. So, and as the movie goes on, you know, there's there's Game of Thrones style houses uh, battling for supremacy. There's treachery. There's in all in all of that is uh, this young man Paul, yeah, who is uh heir to the house of Traities. Um he is uh Duke Leto's only son. Uh Paul is played in this movie by Timothy Chalamet. Mm-hmm. Um Oscar Isaac plays his father, uh, Duke Leto. And his mother is played by Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Lady Jessica. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can go into this. I've, I've read the book. I also rewatched the first movie very recently to kind of compare the two. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so I didn't know you read the book. So that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I've only read the first one so far. Um, but yeah, so Lady Jessica is this Bene Gesserit space witch. Um, and the Bini Gesserts are important. They are this order of, uh, of, of all women who basically go around the universe instilling into cultures this idea uh, uh, their religion, this idea that this chosen one uh, uh, and he will essentially become a space messiah. Yeah. Uh, that will unite the world or the worlds, the various planets in peace. Uh, and, you know, in this prophecy that they have kind of manufactured, uh, which is very interesting, uh, it will be the, the first male to wield the powers of the Bene Gesserits. Uh, So Bene Gesserits are fucking cool. They're witch Jedi things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they can read thoughts. They can see the, you know, visions of the future. And uh, the women can control the sex of their, their offspring. So Lady Jessica goes rogue and makes a male heir to Duke Leto. Her she is the concubine uh, of Duke Leto. And she loves him so much that she goes off the reservation and she makes a male heir, even though you know the prophecy is not supposed to come true. They're trying to manipulate it so that they will have control over who the male heir will be. But, you know, she she made this this boy, and he, Paul, and he seems to have these, some of their abilities. Uh, some, you know, he can use the weirding voice, he gets visions of the future, um, you know, so there's this idea, well, uh, you know, he can't possibly be the space messiah, is he? No. Maybe. Right. but He's not, right? Because... So there's this, Whole chosen one prophecy going on as well. right? In because
1: the- according to the, I mean, according to the world of the story, the prophecy is sort of bunk anyway, but yet he's still having these weird visions and he seems to know certain things he shouldn't. Yeah. And yeah, and it, like the, again, the idea is, is it self-fulfilling or is it, is there might be more to it?
0: Yeah. we we're, you know, the Benny Jesuits—it's it's, it, it's a manufactured prophecy. They—they they yeah. are aware of it. They're trying to manipulate it. Yeah, so
1: it's all—it's it, all to push for political power. Yeah. It, yeah,
0: it's all as as uh, I think it's the emperor says it's all plans within plans within plans.
1: Right, and so eventually, you know, this is only half of the story of the first book Frank Herbert wrote in 1965. And, you know, it, it it has a sort of a climactic point where the rubber hits the road with all these political machinations. Yeah, I think, um,
0: I think it finds a, a pretty natural ending. Uh, yeah, we, some
1: people complain about the the exact spot they decide to stop. But I i thought it worked well enough. And I it left me wanting more, which isn't for this type of thing. Not a bad
0: thing. Especially when it's two and a half hours long. This is a long fucking movie. This is
1: a long movie and it it is pretty front loaded. And I think that um, for people who do have a difficult time with this, it's going to be because the first half of this two and a half hour movie is fairly slow. You're, you're, you're getting just like we're doing in this podcast, you're getting a lot of exposition. You're getting a lot of kind of world building and an explanation of who these different political factions are, what they're fighting for. What do these prophecies mean? Who are these characters? How do they fit on the chessboard? And yeah, I they mean, try and do it as gracefully as possible. And I would say, can, you know, compared to the David Lynch dune in 1984, I think they do it better
0: I, I so that but, was one of the things that I was most impressed with this movie was how kind of I mean they get a lot out, but they yeah I think they do it fairly naturally. It, it's not it's not the thing that you see in bad science fiction movies where it's mm-hmm. like just a, a voiceover of like here's exposition dump exposition dump whatever you know dump right bullshit, dump which bullshit.
1: is which is kind of how they dealt with it in the eighties one which I think was a post production. Um, studio interference, kind of choice, because you know David Lynch, he doesn't necessarily care if you understand what's happening in his movies, but um, studios do, um, yeah. especially if they're trying to make the next Star Wars. So, sure. and, the, and the way they dealt with the exposition is they gave everybody a separate um, internal monologue, and it kind of makes for pretty clunky uh, info dumps all throughout. I.
0: Honestly, don't hate it. <laughs> uh, I actually, I'm an apologist for the original movie. I So I saw the first movie first. I, I saw that before I knew anything about the world of Dune. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, let's give it a shot. Uh, I was kind of dipping my toes into the David Lynch waters. yeah, okay, And I thought it was fun. I'm like, this is, it's clunky at times, uh, yeah. but it's also really fucking cool at times. And and is mythic in a way that this movie never really tries to be. This movie tries to be like the grounded you, you know they're giving it the games of Thrones, game of thrones prestige treatment, right? They're taking this shit as seriously as possible. Yeah. And the you know the 80 the 80s one has a bit more of the space opera about it. So yeah,
1: it's a big B movie.
0: Yeah. And so I think, you know, there is fun to be had in in the first one. But yeah,
1: I mean, they're two different. I mean, even though they're adapting the same material, kind of, um, they're pretty two different creatures. Yeah. You know, you're looking at like kind of more of a post Star Wars, post Masters of the Universe, you know, guys in rubber suits kind of movie Mm -hmm. versus... Um, this, which has this, the Denny Villeneuve directed yeah, it's, this it's
0: post Christopher Nolan post uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah, you know.
1: I would say there's definitely sort of the specter of early Ridley Scott kind Absolutely. of vibes.
0: Yes, hell yes, there is. Um, um, yeah, it, it, it's it's honestly yeah, just two different approaches. But it's a
1: much more austere, serious uh what i think is interesting is is both versions
0: and and i won't talk too much about the the 80s version Mm -hmm. Um, i i just kind of did that for my reference um but what i think is interesting is they're both fairly faithful adaptations they just do it in in very different ways like yeah you, you know uh uh the old movie touches on stuff. I mean, clearly the new movie is only the first half, so yeah. it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, but I think that's, you know, kind of to this movie's benefit. Cause there's so much
1: story to fucking tell. Right. I mean, I, I, at two and a half hours long, you know, going back to, to what I was talking about, how it's kind of front loaded with information, mm-hmm. um, information you need, but I think a, to the movie's strength i think Belle knew he creates this big huge operatic i mean a visually stunning world yes absolutely um, like yeah, he,
0: if you're not engaged necessarily with what's going on there is plenty more than enough at. to look at
1: yeah and you and, and i think that he's he kind of overwhelms you um you know overwhelms your senses in the first half of the film to sort of, you know, as, as the sugar to let the medicine go down. And then once you're supposed to know all the things you're supposed to know, then he's like, okay, now, now we're going to get some traction on these story beats. And this is, you know, we're going to, we're going to see how some of these uh, betrayals and and coups and jihads and all this stuff, how's this all going to play out? Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, especially if you're, a younger modern moviegoer who's Marvel brained, I'll say. If you're not paying pretty close attention to that first two hours of the movie or the first hour and 40, if you're kind of only half paying attention or you're like, ah, it'll make sense eventually, um, you might uh, get a little lost. In why certain things matter, why certain characters die and others don't, and first of all, what do these betrayals necessarily mean? First Um, of all,
0: and maybe this is because I, you know, I don't know. I, I think you're not. I sure, yes, there. It's not spoon
1: feeding you all of that stuff in the same way that some movies might.
0: And this isn't Star Wars. It's it's going to take a while before the action sort of happens, but when. Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to keep going back to this reference, and there's a reason why.
1: Well, uh, I think Game of Thrones pretty liberally borrows from Dune, as well, does everything. Dune as, is Dune yeah. is kind of a a Rosetta Stone uh, piece of fiction that you know everything from Star Wars to to Stargate to to uh, uh, yeah. Game of Thrones, uh, The Matrix, um, Ender's Game. All of that stuff is borrowing from from this story.
0: Yes, absolutely. The the uh the original book was a seminal work of science fiction and mm-hmm. clearly inspired a lot of people. But but the point I was getting at was Game of Thrones became one of the the it, it was the biggest show on television. Yeah. Uh, but might still be the biggest show that has been on television, right? It was a cultural touchstone for people. That first season is so fucking dense with you know mm-hmm. gray joys and lannisters and starks that like i literally had no idea what was going on except for my friend ted who had read the books and was like sort of kind of translating stuff for me he's like okay well this you know this guy's going to become important for these reasons like he kind of had to walk me through some stuff uh-huh. and I don't think that I'm the only one who, who had to do that. But for a show like that to become, you know, one of the, the, the biggest show on fucking television. As big I, as it I is. I think you're yeah. not giving enough credit to an audience that, yes, they might be into the Marvel movies, but they also were into fucking Game of Thrones. Like That's they, true.
1: They, That's true. I and, and it it's kind of weird how bifurcated – media is in terms of the sophistication of storytelling between television and film these days. But I think people walk into a theater expecting one experience and then they watch something like game of Thrones expecting another. Uh, And I, and I, and and no, and I think there are some people who are going to, I'm not, I'm not, I first of all, let me just throw this out there. I really, really liked this movie a lot.
0: I am not. So I'm this not, is
1: this is not necessarily even a criticism. More so, is just kind of a precaution. This isn't like Babby's first, you yeah, know, space it, it's, opera.
0: It's not Star Wars. It's it's yeah. not The Force Awakens. It's not, uh, you know, these kind of. It's not as fast. It's not as poppy. Uh, it's it's a different kind of spectacle. Right. Um, but I'm just saying. I think you're not giving people enough audiences enough credit i yeah sure there will be people who don't who aren't that into this that's fine they can go fuck themselves uh <laughs> i i would recommend if you can you know if you're comfortable get that theatrical experience because yeah it forces you to put your phone away it forces you to you know it's the pay attention a big fucking screen that you have to focus on yeah i i do think yeah if you're trying to like Scroll on your phone while you're sort of half watching it, it's probably going to be pretty dry and not make a lot of sense. But, uh, but I appreciate that it demands your attention. That
1: I you, do too. And I, I don't think that it's, it's not like you're like, you know, building a Rubik's Cube the whole movie in your head. It's, it's not puzzly in that way. But, and it, I don't think it, it's it is boring. asking you to pay attention to who's who and what they're there for. Yeah. But, but I think it does it in interesting
0: ways. I don't think it's, Mm-hmm. It's a boring build, but it's it's a it is a build. It is a slow build. Yeah, uh, I I don't think it's you know, uh, pun completely intended. I don't think it's as dry as the sands of Arrakis. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're uh, doing it all. Um, when, when we were watching <laughs> this in theaters, though, I do have to tell you that. I don't know what happened, but like the AC broke or something halfway yeah. through the movie. And so by the end, it literally like it was fucking 4D storytelling because it was so hot in the theater <laughs> that we were just like, Jesus Christ, we need to get off of this sand planet.
1: <laughs> well, and, and I'll say to the movie's credit, I think, and this is something, you know, that Danny Villeneuve is just very good at in general. Um, He's so good at building a world and he's so good at building yeah. an atmosphere and create, you know, pulling together uh, a team of visual creatives who, who really you, you can feel the sand in your hair. You yeah. can, you can taste the air of Arrakis. You can, you know what I mean? Like there is, oh absolutely. there's a, a tactility to this world. And, and I think given sort of how spectacles and how, big action blockbusters are so green screened nowadays and everything is, you know, all the space tech and stuff is, is all kind of is, bleepy bloopy and it yeah, all, this
0: is very tactile, very yeah, uh, kind of dirty. Uh uh, And that's, I think that's what you're talking the, the, about. The tech
1: you... actually looks functional, even though it looks like otherworldly and alien. It also looks like, it looks like it's there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't look like, you know, these 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 giant um space grasshopper things that they're riding in, the thornicopters, they actually look like a functional piece of equipment that they're actually in. And it's so and I and I think he Velnew does a really, really good job at using practical effects as much as humanly possible. Absolutely. Yeah. This this movie and relying on your sets and relying on what's in the frame. Yeah,
0: it, it has a very tactical a uh, tactile feel it has a very in a way old school feel because mm-hmm. so much of it is is relying on on practicality and stuff but done with modern cutting edge technology so mm-hmm. it you know it doesn't have some of those hang ups that practical effects had back in the 80s <laughs>
1: um, right or i mean even now i mean even now there's a point when we're watching a whatever movie Mm -hmm. where, you know, a big spaceship comes on screen and and you know that that's not actually there. That's like the, obviously we are now in a CGI environment. Um, And we just kind of accept it because we're like, this is how we watch movies now. But in this movie, it's, I, you know, with the exception of maybe the sandworm, there's not that much where I'm like, I don't, 100% know what's a set and what isn't. No, they got
0: got real sandworms for that.
1: They did grow them. Yeah, Yeah, it was really hard.
0: No, I actually, okay, this is a weird, this is a weird thing. (laughs) I sort of preferred the uh, design of the worms from the David Lynch one. Now, I mean, obviously, I I still think they look great in this. Uh, Uh Again, like, they're definitely maximizing their technology and stuff. I just, in general, kind of liked the look of those ones
1: you like your sandworms with more lips
0: yeah they have kind of like these yeah like anal labia uh uh beak things going on whereas this looks more like a forbidden butthole
1: yeah i mean both are terrifying in their own ways yeah um i mean i i I mean they're i just can't i can't um under undersell the scale Of everything in this movie, whether you're watching it on a TV at home or whether you're watching it on on an IMAX screen, it feels huge. Yes. And I mean, one of the things that's doing a lot of that, and this might be one of my only real points of contention with the movie, Mm -hmm. is the Hans Zimmer score. He is full Hans Zimmer. He's zimmering it up. Um, And it's very loud. And it's a little insistent. I think it's a good score. And there's some interesting stuff. There's a there's bagpipes and some like um, non-traditional like Mellotrons and the interesting instruments. If we're going
0: to get if we're going to get going there, uh, why the fuck were there bagpipes and not Gurney Halleck's balustrade? (laughs) What the fuck, Denis Villeneuve? (laughs) There is there is one area where David Lynch's was. More accurate. Okay. Um, no, I
1: I, know I like what you mean. I like the score, but sometimes there's some scenes where I felt like maybe this was a a studio note of like there's not a ton happening here, so can we just like blast people's ears out so that they I, I feel mean, like there's action when there's not?
0: Maybe this was a theater thing, but that didn't that didn't bother me. I I don't know. I was just
1: and a lot of the dialogue is kind of in whisper or in like low tone mumble. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that people complained about with tenant, as far as that, the mix goes, I thought was maybe more of a problem here. Now I did watch it at home and I had subtitles, so I was fine.
0: And there, there is a little bit of that, Uh, you know, like when, when they're, you know, like the, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Like, I I kind of like in, again, I'm trying not to compare it to the the David Lynch one too much, but that's kind of what I'm talking about when the David Lynch one is more mythic uh, because, you know, these lines of dialogue, this like beautiful, uh, these poetic mantras that these characters have um, in the previous version get kind of played up to this big like grandeur in this, it's it's almost like he gave them the note of go the opposite with it, make it as internalized right. as possible, make it you know a, a prayer to yourself and the Dune gods, right. and, and yep. I do think that I, I I appreciate that as a choice, but yes, at times it was a little harder to hear. So I, I do agree with you there.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 generally speaking, I like that approach. The kind of everybody in the cast, and you can just tell by who they cast. As mm-hmm. as these characters, none of these are. Oh, and I, I mean, I mean Dave a- Bautista and, and, and Jason Momoa are maybe known for big characters, but for the most part, every, your leads, especially, these are all very internal actors.
0: And this is a murderer's row of talent. I mean, yes. Holy shit. This cast is loaded. Yeah. Jason Momoa, Dave Bautista, Oscar Isaac. Uh, Josh Brolin. Re- Re-
1: Javier yeah. Bardem. Stellan Sarsgaard, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, yeah, uh, Zendaya. Uh, Zendaya is Chani. Is <laughs> Zendaya is Chani? Yeah, it is just an absolute incredible cast. I fucking loved this movie. I live for this. I I think mm-hmm. this is the biggest movie I, or, or like biggest theatrical experience that I, that I that since like Lord of the Rings, like mm-hmm. you know, it is it is taking this book that that may you know this prestige sci-fi novel which takes these kind of pulpy ideas and pulp concepts and and tries to make take it as seriously as possible and this is a movie that is also trying to make it prestige and make it as serious as possible yeah Uh, my biggest complaint is that he didn't film the part two back to back like lord of the rings so that we're gonna have to wait two more fucking years for the next one.
1: Yeah. And it was actually, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just kind of fake. Oh yeah. I mean, maybe this this would have had
0: to be a massive flop for them to not green light.
1: Right. But if, if there were any years where that could be a possibility, that would be this year. Yeah. But it also has the,
0: you know, the, I think kind of the, the pandemic handicap going on.
1: Right. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. And, and also it's, it, it was day and date. With uh with HBO Max, which could have hurt it, there were a lot of things that made it a little bit more risky than it would be otherwise. Sure, yeah. Um, but,
0: but if it had been, you know, as big of a flop as David Lynch's Dune, then yeah, there a sequel would. Yeah.
1: not Yeah, and every once in a while, a there are movies that are very big that don't do well. That's true. Um, I mean, uh, what was Annihilation was like famously kind of a flop. Yeah, I, and it was a I, great and, movie. I mean, it's totally underseen Doctor Sleep with uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Who, it's
0: true, but I I feel like a movie on this scale. I I think just from the trailer, you can tell this is like a oh I have to fucking see that in theaters.
1: Kind yeah, of. it was event. It was event filmmaking, and I'll say this. I mean, of this is like the first movie in a long time that like tapped into that holy shit, that's just fucking cool. Like, part of my brain. Like, the totally uncynical, just along for the ride, soaking in the visuals. I actually care about this world. I care about these characters. I want to see where this goes. I'm in. Let's do this.
0: So that's interesting that you bring that up, Uh, the characters. I think that is something... Denis Villeneuve um, is so big and so visual of a director that Mm -hmm. uh, I think occasionally... He can kind of be similar to a Christopher Nolan in that, you know, sometimes the characters aren't maybe as well drawn as, as they could be. Uh, He can be a little
1: cold. Yeah, a little cold. He can be a little cold. cold. And sometimes that's not a problem for him. And sometimes it is. I felt as, you know, as beautiful as. Um, Arrival and yeah and exactly. um, Blade Blade in twenty forty nine were I appreciate those more on a technical level than I do on a story level
0: for sure. Well, especially uh, uh, an emotional level, whereas right, which is interesting to me because you know, like Paul as a character is a you know kind of a cold uh, uh, character, but mm-hmm. I, I think all of the characters are so well drawn in the books and in the previous version that that was to his benefit. There's all already this groundwork kind of done. And so he just had to find these, you know, human moments for them. And, and like I said, it almost like he told the characters to make it that much more internal because the rest of the movie was so bombastic that I, I, I think it played to his his directing style in particular, uh I, I, I think it definitely played to his favor in this case.
1: Yeah, it, it, I think of his sci-fi work, especially, um, because I really like Prisoners and I really like Sicario. Mm-hmm. And up till this point, those have been my favorite of his works was his non-sci-fi stuff. Um but I think this finds a really good balance of what he does visually and what he does as a storyteller. And I think you can genuinely feel the passion he has for this project and for this book. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this cast is just pitch perfect. I love everybody. uh, I how they're cast and how they play off of each other.
0: I will say I slightly prefer Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck, but. Josh Brolin's great, of course. Very um, different,
1: yeah. A, kind of a different um, uh, take on that.
0: Yeah, uh, which, which I again, I think he he does a good job. Um,
1: uh, I like I was, the depiction of cheeky. the Fremen a lot more in this one.
0: Well, they make them more distinguished. Like I, yeah, I you know, the, they make them more of a culture, which they definitely are in the book. Yeah. But, you know, the first time seeing it, the the david lynch one i didn't really get what the fremen were right um i i didn't really understand that and 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 this is
1: kind of maybe a double-edged sword because you know there's been think pieces written and whatever i don't pay much mind to it but the white um, savior thing i mean the white the white savior thing the origin
0: of the white savior thing but (laughs) but i I think it matters i
1: think it it matters that this this um this tribe of people the the the, who live on this planet don't look like the imperialists who are trying to take it over. I think that matters. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, and I think that that is also thematic. I mean, I, it was in a, well, in, they, a post, in, uh, in a post, in a post Iraq world, in a post nine um, 11 uh, culture that we live in, it's impossible for me not to see this as an allegory for the oil wars in the Middle East.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course not, but you know, the book was written in 1965, so that tells you
1: how. I mean, imperialism existed before that point,
0: but exactly, that's what I was saying. It tells you how much uh, we've changed as, as you know, culturally since then. And there's an Uh, ecological
1: um, uh, story being told here, and you know, now that we're like not too far from living on a desert planet, um, you know, there's a this movie. I think taps. it's, it's maybe in a zeitgeisty kind of way it's sort of tapping into maybe it only works as well as it does now because it is now.
0: May, that yeah, that's possible. I I will say as far as I want to go back to the white savior trope a little bit. Um mm-hmm.
1: uh
0: if uh, yeah, if you go into this movie and that's all you get out of it, uh that's understandable. I that reading is definitely there. I do think uh something that the white savior trope has kind of abandoned since Dune uh, is that a big part of Paul's arc is that he also has to come to this culture. He has to give up who he was. Right. Yeah. Uh, And that is something that I think, you know, doesn't happen a lot. Usually it's, you know, white man comes and save the day and it's imperialist as fuck. And, and yes, that is still here, but I do think it is important that like Paul as a character, you know, he has to learn the ways of the Fremen. He has to right. uh uh respect and that's what separates House Atreides from the Harkonnens is he's you know, even Duke Leto, who doesn't go as far as Paul, is will, you know, his father he values life. He values their culture. He values, you know, maybe it's strategic maybe it's because he knows that they'll make strong allies but he's also you know genuinely a good dude he's more worried about the people on the spice freight on the spice harvester than the spice harvester which is you know very different than the harkonnens it it is also a humanist tale in that aspect so you know i
1: yeah and people have made the comparisons to um to uh, Lawrence of Arabia, as well as you could see something as modern as like dances of wolves and that type of thing as well.
0: Exactly. So there, there is a little, I think a little more respect to it than just writing it off a, a, as, you know, imperialist shrill But, you know, again,
1: if that's your interpretation, I, that's valid. I think that there, at least in this interpretation in this version of the movie we're getting, on um, this version of the story we're getting i think that the movie's self-aware enough yeah of those of those things to to not just present it at face value but to also sort of critique it at the same time yeah. i yeah. i mean i got that and i've never read the book you know well, and again that's and like you the- said in the in the 84 version everyone's white so to yeah. say you're not really thinking about it in those terms exactly all so, the women are white
0: all you know yeah, yeah. i think that's Again, why? Another reason I liked this movie so much is like mm-hmm. you know I was fully expecting to go into it. Only I would be the I would be the only person in the theater enjoying it. I'm just yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> fucking, speed, feed me spice, baby. Uh But yeah, I mean, my, my wife liked it a lot too, you know. And she's never read the book. She's mm-hmm. she hasn't watched the the other movie, so it's like that's why I appreciate the way the exposition is is Doled done out. in this movie is it? it is approachable still it is yep. it's it's not too
1: chunky and yeah it, it and i think that the exposition while dense is at least presented in a way that it's tied to scenes? moments of significant character building
0: well yeah it's tied to actual scenes it's not just this is yeah. the part where we say all the stuff it is yeah. Uh, it is done in, in some pretty um, right. careful ways. And, you know, there's also.
1: But I mean, it, if you are the type of person who, when somebody goes on to a diatribe of, you know, and of prophecy foretold the blah, blah, but you're going, you might, you'd start tuning some stuff out.
0: I don't think so. I think this, is, I think it handles that stuff really well. Uh, I, in, in there's a lot of stuff to handle. So I, yeah. I'm going di- to disagree with you on that. I think it, it dulls it out as naturally as you can given the source material.
1: Yeah. I mean, it. it, it I, I think it's, it streamlines it as well as it can. And again, this is half of a, half of a full story. Um, so yeah. you don't get a, you don't really get a three act situation. Um, yeah. You kind of get two acts and it's like, the first one is meeting a bunch of people. And then the second one is, you know, running away from this thing and that thing, and we got to get to the, to this before you know these people take over this thing. And so it start, It goes from pretty slow to pretty nonstop, um, kind of on the turn of a dime. But I was there for all of it.
0: I agree. This I think this movie was fun. It was cool. It was badass. Yeah. Uh, I'm giving this an A plus. I loved it.
1: I'm giving it an A. I'm giving it an A. It might become an A plus depending on how we uh land the ship on this on the second half here.
0: That's yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh but you know we don't have that yet. So given yeah. just the movie we got, I was completely satisfied. Yes, there's more adventure to be had on Arrakis. There are more mysteries to be revealed. Mm-hmm. Um I of course I would be sad if a part two didn't happen, but I think this it still feels like a complete movie to me.
1: Yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot. And like I said, I did watch it at home. I am going to try and see it in theater before it's out, because I think it's worth seeing it on as big of a screen as possible. I, I agree. And this is one of those movies where 10 years, 20 years from now, people are going to be saying, I would love to see Denny Villeneuve's Dune in a theater.
0: Yeah, like. Wouldn't it be cool to see Lord of the Rings in a theater again? Of course. Yeah. yeah. I, that's what I mean. I think this feels the most like an event movie we've had like that since. And, right. and I'm fucking here for it.
1: For sure. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about the uh, streaming homework. Uh, very different movie. <laughs> yeah. A very different kind of movie. We're going from space opera to character study. Um, Dutch character study with, uh, another round, which you watched on an airplane. I did, which kind of blows my mind a, that you would choose to watch this, a foreign film in an airplane. Cause I feel like you're on an airplane. You're just looking for comfort food. So you're not thinking about crashing and dying um
0: I, I mean i guess if so i
1: would i fly. would probably <laughs> want to watch the most like mind-numbing like dumbass okay. comedy or something so to not
0: before i watched this for yeah. context it was it was a five hour flight um so before i watched this this was a double feature with uh the guy Ritchie movie that came out a couple of years ago uh starring matthew mcconaughey the gentleman okay um so, I I guess I was kind of trying to pair it off of that a little bit. Um, okay, and honestly, kind of works in a weird way, but all right. Uh, um, yeah, I did. Right. I watched it on airplane.
1: This movie stars Mads Mickelson, mm-hmm. and it's directed by uh, written and directed by Thomas Fingerberg. They've worked together before on previous movies. Um, and it's about a group of school high school teachers who are kind of at this point in their life. We might call it a midlife crisis. Um, It almost feels
0: a little post midlife crisis though.
1: Right. I mean, we're, we're in a different culture. This is, this is like Scandinavia. So it's, it's a little bit different than like the American thing. I'm sure somebody could try and do the American version of this movie, but I don't know if it would work the same way. But um, the idea is basically you know, Mads Mickelson in particular, who's our main character, is kind of going through uh, a, a slump in his marriage. He doesn't talk to his wife as much as he used to. They're sort of on different schedules. Um, they're dealing with their teenage kids and stuff, and it's and he's dealing with work and he just, you know, the life is sort of drained out of their marriage and out of his out of his uh, passion for his job. Um, and to a, a, some extent or another, the same thing is kind of happening with his friends who are also teachers at the same school. And they go out and they, they drink and they, they talk. And um, the subject comes up from one of them that they had read somewhere or, or had heard from some philosopher or sociologist or scientist or something that, that people actually perform better if they have a, a 0.05 blood alcohol content. Um,
0: Like all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If you can maintain just like a light buzz all the time up until eight o'clock PM uh, which they arbitrarily decide because that's when Hemingway would quit drinking after writing all day, Mm -hmm. then they might be able to sort of function better because they have so much fun when they're out drinking that um, they wonder why can't they feel like that all the time. So as an experiment, they decide to sort of, put some ground rules down, how they're going to be doing this. They all buy little alcohol blowers. So to know where they're at at all times in their, in their system. Um, They take a little something, something to work in their bag. um, And they just try and maintain a functional buzz throughout their school day. And in the beginning of the story, it does to seem to have some sort of positive effects. They all sort of get into their work a little bit more, inspire the kids a little bit more. They're listening to their lectures a little better. Um, they uh, relate with their students more. Um, and they, you also discover that this town that they live in, in um, Danish town, I don't know exactly where they are. It's some sort of port town. Um there's a heavy drinking culture that starts at your teenage years. Well, and yeah, so yeah,
0: generally, uh, you know, in, in most, you know, uh, Anglo cultures besides America um, drinking isn't as taboo. Um, right. And generally so it can the,
1: start earlier.
0: Yeah. Generally yeah. The, the drinking age is oh, know, the lower most places. 18. Yeah. yeah.
1: And actually that's relatively new for American culture because before, I want to say like the early 80s or late 70s or so, there were the the 3.2 bars or whatever where kids could drink watered down alcohol. Oh, I didn't know. This was a, maybe not everywhere, but a, maybe a per state kind of thing. And they did away with it eventually. It became universally 21 years or older for any amount. But um, there was a point in time where you could go to these like, they call it near beer. And, um, you know, people our parents age would go and have like shitty watered down beer and just have to drink three times as much of it to get a normal drunk.
0: I mean, that's that's the Utah effect right there.
1: Well, that's that's what that is (laughs) still there. But I'm talking about this was like a kind of a cultural teenage thing. Yeah, um, which I, I is no longer exists that, in America. The
0: the idea that like you know lower alcohol percentage isn't going to keep people from getting drunk. It's just going to get them to drink more.
1: Yeah, liquid. I it, mean, it's, it's it's kind of silly, but yeah. Um, but it, it, interestingly enough, he, uh, Vinterberg does this this thing where he he sh- he opens the movie with this teenage partying bar debauchery. And then he he uh, juxtaposes that with you know these stuff shirt square teachers, um, sort of sipping on their champagne, talking about how much their lives suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's you know it it ends it sort of bookends in a similar way as well. Yeah. But uh, as you might guess, as the story progresses, their <laughs> their their tolerance starts to. Exceed the what they originally planned. They were going to have per day. Yeah, and, different and people kind of take it further. And they start to lose control. A lot
0: helps more.
1: Yes, yeah. if a little helps, then a lot helps more. Yeah, and it it, it starts to affect their lives in different ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this was this was your presentation. What did you think of this movie?
0: Yeah, I just I think it's a really interesting movie. I think the concept is really interesting Mm -hmm. um that was what hooked me was just you know the long line of of four teachers decide they're gonna you know do this experiment to stay partially drunk it's like all right that sounds fun enough i didn't exactly know what i was getting into (laughs) um uh but yeah i liked it a lot i think it's a really interesting uh character study about you know growing older and Mm -hmm. and you know, the things we do to to find happiness and to be, you know, to stay youthful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think I don't know. I just there was something about this movie that was really just interesting to me. And then, you know the the hook, if the hook isn't enough, you know, it's a great character study with an excellent performance. Uh, By Mads Mikkelsen. Um, I wasn't familiar with anybody else. I'm, you know, they're all Danish actors. Yeah. Um, But they're all great. Uh,
1: Yeah. And very distinct. I mean, there's a lot of different personalities here. Yeah. Um, uh, Thomas Bo Larson has been in a lot of other Vinterberg movies. Okay. Um, He plays the coach who's kind of the most like brash and obviously has a problem.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But also very um, kind-hearted. He, you know, he has this. There's this this nerdy little boy in his soccer team, and he's trying to sort of help him along. And yeah, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. that that scene when the kid asks if he can have a sip of his water, and obviously he's he's infiltrating some sort of alcohol in it. Yeah, so he like forces some other kid or something. Yeah, he, he forces some other kid to give him water, and it just creates this, this awkward moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of humor in this movie. That's why, you know, it's, yeah. it's not totally a drama. There's definitely drama to be had. There's definitely a lot of dramatic tension, and it's not like a gut buster. Um, yeah. It's not like hilarious, but, you know, it has a lot of light humor as, as well. Yeah,
1: I mean, in Scandinavia, this is like The Hangover. <laughs> like this is this is as lighthearted as it gets <laughs> but, <laughs> but um uh-huh. but yeah i i what i what i always appreciate and what i always think is kind of funny is you see you know you see these actors like stalin skarsgård or like mads Mikkelsen, um in these films from their homeland and they get to play like teachers and adults with like actual lived in experiences and lives. And then when they come to America, it's like, you're a bond villain or you are an alien or, you know, (laughs) it's like you, you don't get to be a normal person. You you get to be a mad scientist. Maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Uh, To be fair, Mads Mickelson is one of the best bond villains, but yes,
1: Oh, uh, Hannibal Lecter or whatever
0: but yes yeah it's it's their accent man it's so sinister yeah I mean
1: he, he he does have kind of an off-putting quality to him but it also sort of plays really well I mean the camera is totally in love with his face in this movie and he does so much performance oh yeah um you know again very internal actor
0: yeah um, in and a very you know internal internal movie and mm-hmm. uh you know it it's I also like its approach to alcohol and alcoholism. Like it's not totally damning. Uh the you know, it's it's not a teetotaler movie. Um, but it is also, you know, like very clearly, like, you know, it is a temporary solution to their very real problems going on in their life. And
1: right. And as you and as the movie goes, you start to see like what each one of them, like Matt Mickelson, obviously he has his issues with his marriage, which sort of is the catalyst to this experiment starting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have another character who is a new father and that's stressing him out. And there's this, the, this, uh, the, the character that Thomas Bo Larson plays who, you know, is just kind of a lonely older guy and doesn't have a lot going on. And, mm-hmm. um, and everybody is kind of in this weird, awkward stage of their life where they're trying to sort of, hold on to something again
0: yeah yeah and and you know i i think you could make the argument that the idea of of the experiment is more impactful on their lives than the alcohol itself just the idea that they're doing something you know that they're they're participating in a thing i you know i think is more where the the actual high comes from uh yeah, and and I think yeah, the the movie makes a lot of uh, uh interesting, fairly judgment free, which is what I think is uh yeah. what I appreciated about it because you know when it comes to the subject of of alcohol and alcoholism, it's very easy to take a side. Um,
1: it doesn't become an addiction movie, like I mean, yeah, you, exactly. The alcohol affects different characters different ways. And there are some for whom it is definitely a problem. Yeah. And it definitely becomes a problem. And there are some for whom it it isn't, but it's also not the the the, the real solution. It's more just kind of of supplanting it's, the solution.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and that's what I think is just really interesting about the, the movie is is that is such a European view of alcohol. Um right uh yeah i don't know i just this was one of those movies that i i I fucking watched on airplane it came out of nowhere i only kind of knew about it because of twitter uh and i was like sure i'll give it a shot and i was i was pleasantly surprised i really Mm -hmm. enjoyed it
1: i remember hearing a little bit of buzz about it um out of the Cannes film festival (laughs) And hearing about Matt Mickelson's performance and things like that. And mm-hmm. um, I had seen uh, the other, one of the other movies he did with Thomas Finchberg called the hunt uh, back in 2012, where he also plays a teacher and it's a, a, quite a darker movie, but um, I also really, really like that movie a lot. And uh, yeah, so I was excited to, to, to see this one. I did think it was kind of funny. So to get film nerd, um Thomas Vinterberg comes out of that whole like uh, Dogma '95 thing that uh, Lars von Trier and a handful of other Danish directors and also Harmony Korine from America um, did in the the mid to late '90s, where they wrote a uh, a manifesto together of um all of these rules they were going to follow for their films going forward oh, like you can only use natural lighting you can never use any kind of rig on your camera all must be handheld blah 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 and it goes on for a while uh, um and there there was like tw- oh, i don't know 15 or so of these these rules and they all made about two or three movies following these rules before they're like okay fuck this shit we're <laughs> gonna go back and make move make actual movies again. Um, but it's interesting to go back and watch some of those dogma films um, when they were all doing that. And I think Vinterberg's um, entry into that, *The Celebration*, is probably the the most successful um, of of the uh, the dogma '95 class. But I think it's funny in this film they're writing this manifesto of like how they're going to be doing the drinking and like you know. I I wondered if there was like a meta textual. I mean, kind of thing going on there. Maybe, you know, because yeah,
0: they, they have these, you know, lofty ambitions and ideals, but then yeah. know, they have to adapt when, you know, they realize certain things aren't practical and, and that certain things don't work. Right. Um,
1: and, way. and maybe there's kind yeah, there's kind of a, a story within a story happening there.
0: Maybe. Um, I wasn't aware of that. So that is, uh, uh, that probably is uh, an interesting coloring <laughs> to the, the viewing.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and just in general i think more filmmakers need to have manifestos uh, i would like to see general, like I, I back don't know in the day if more when manifestos
0: I was, is what the world needs at all but
1: <laughs> well uh, back in the day when i was when i was going to film school and you would learn about like you know the the french new wave guys and then there were the people before that like the the german new wave and all of these people they all would write these very lofty, like this is what cinema is and what it always should be. And we will not break these rules. And of course they would all break them eventually. But, yeah. um, but I just think uh, we could use a a manifesto driven film movement uh, in 2021. I'm sure something <laughs> like
0: that will. <laughs>
1: well, happen. you kind of have that a little bit with the mumble core. That was yeah. kind of like dogma 95 for, for like um, underachieving. Digital filmmakers, slackers in America, but
0: sure. All
1: right. Um. So that is cool. The next movie we're going to be doing for uh, the streaming homework is "The Man with the Golden Arm." Uh, this is directed by Otto Preminger, uh, who's done a few, couple films I, I've also really enjoyed, crime films um, from back in the day. But also, he starred as uh briefly as um mr freeze in the batman series oh fun in the 60s all right and if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about on this episode or previous you can email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com you can also get in contact with us or dm us on twitter and instagram at mcguffinpod uh you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash Uh, You can read my reviews that I do weekly at the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal movie reviews, and that'll take you to the archives. And you can also read the articles and other reviews written by the MacGuffin staff by going to McGuff.in. You'll also see the uh, podcast archives there, too, if you just want to share the page individually. But uh, if you're listening to us on a podcast app, such as Spotify and iTunes or Stitcher radio, player.fm, whatever, uh, go ahead and leave us a one sentence review and a five-star rating. That would be much appreciated. And uh, yeah, just spread the word.
0: Uh, Yeah. And you can follow me on Twitter. That's the social media I'm on most these days for some fucking reason. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid and my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic.
1: Yes, you can follow me on Twitter individually at BC Cassidy, both on Twitter and on Instagram at BC Cassidy. Uh, and that is the episode.
0: I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Bye.